Our text this morning is 1 Kings chapter 13. Now behold, there came a man of God from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord, while Jeroboam was standing by the altar to burn incense. He cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord. Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. Then he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be split apart, and the ashes which are on it shall be poured out. Now it came about when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar in Bethel, that Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him. His hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar also was split apart, and the ashes were poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. The king said to the man of God, Please entreat the Lord your God, and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. So the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him, and it came as, and it became as it was before. Then the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. But the man of God said to the king, If you were to give me half your house, I would not go with you, nor would I eat bread or drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall eat no bread, nor drink water, nor return by the way which you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way which he came to Bethel. Now an old prophet was living in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all the deeds which the man of God had done that day in Bethel. The words which he had spoken to the king, these also they related to their father. Their father said to them, Which way did he go? Now his sons had seen the way which the man of God who came from Judah had gone. Then he said to his sons, Saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him, and he rode away on it. So he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, Are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said to him, Come home with me and eat bread. He said, I cannot return with you, nor go with you, nor will I eat bread or drink water with you in this place. For a command came to me by the word of the Lord, You shall eat no bread nor drink water there. Do not return by going the way which you came. He said to him, I also am a prophet like you. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you to your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. Now it came about as they were sitting down at the table that the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. And he cried to the man of God who came from Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord, Because you have disobeyed the command of the Lord and have not observed the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you, but have returned and eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, Eat no bread and drink no water. Your body shall not come to the grave of your fathers. It came about after he had eaten bread and after he had drunk that he saddled the donkey for him, for the prophet whom he had brought back. Now when he had gone, a lion met him on the way, 
and killed him. And his body was thrown on the road with the donkey standing beside it. The lion also was standing beside the body. And behold, men passed and saw the body thrown on the road and the lion standing beside the body. So they came and told it to the city where the old prophet lived. Now when the prophet who brought him back from the way heard it, he said, It is the man of God who disobeyed the commandment of the Lord. Therefore the Lord has given him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to him. Then he said to his son, saying, Saddle the donkey for me, and they saddled it. He went and found his body thrown on the road with the donkey and the lion standing beside the body. The lion had not eaten the body nor torn the donkey. So the prophet took up the body of the man of God and laid it on the donkey and brought it back. And he came to the city of the old prophet to mourn and to bury him. He laid his body in his own grave and they mourned over him saying, Alas, my brother. It came about after he had buried him that he spoke to his son, saying, When I die, bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the thing shall surely come to pass, which he cried by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places which are in the cities of Samaria. After these events, Jeroboam did not return from his evil way, but again, he made priests of the high places from among all the people, any who would be ordained to be priest of the high places. This event became sin to the house of Jeroboam, even to blot it out and destroy it from off the face of the earth. Lord Jesus, thank you for this text. May we be obedient. Your word will stand. In Jesus' name, amen. I have to say that when I, uh, when I chose this text, it has always fascinated me, but I, I actually had some thoughts about ratings for parents, you know, like PG-13 and so on, and you just put it up at the top of the Bible story, only I would call this D5, don't even think about it. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine a sincere but uh, not fully informed father sitting down with the kids and say, we're going to read a Bible story tonight from 1 Kings chapter 13. And as he gets on down to the story to the lion and all of that, he's, his eyes are getting wider and wider thinking, why did I ever go to this passage? It's terrible. You know, you scare little kids with it. What do you do with this text? But... Angels, uh, sometimes preachers go where angels fear to dread, tread, I should say. <laughs> and uh, I've decided to, to venture in anyway. It is, a, it is a fascinating text. Now, just leading up to this text in chapter 13, we have this story about uh, the death of Solomon. His son Rehoboam is about to take over the throne. But we know from the sin of Solomon with all of his many wives and, and the involvement of the worship of all these different gods, we know that God had said to Solomon, I'm going to divide your kingdom. I'm not going to do it in your lifetime, but I will do it in the lifetime of your sons. <laughs> in that sense, Rehoboam doesn't have a chance, right? Uh, but don't think it's just God doling out consequences because Rehoboam is really dumb. Uh, he, 
he has this opportunity. And by the way, there's an interesting set of themes that goes through this book. One of them is the theme of slavery. Go back to the Exodus and the mistreatment of the Israelite slaves, right? And, and God delivering them out of that misery. And then once he brings them into the land, he says, now you remember you were slaves. It's Solomon who enslaves people in Israel. Now, I know non-Israelites would say, but he's got a big, long set of slaves, and he abuses them. So the only thing that people are interested in when Rehoboam comes to power is, lighten up, dude, just lighten up. Speak kindly and go a little easier on us, and we're, we're your servants. And you remember that's where his not-too-bright buddies with whom he had grown up took variance with the counsel of the older uh, elders that had counseled his father, and they said, hey, my finger is bigger than your father's loin, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and, and he just said, you haven't seen anything yet. Well, that was enough for the people of Israel to say, look, buster, you go your way, we'll go ours. So Rehoboam ends up with Judah. Interestingly, uh, Benjamin's kind of tossed in there, strangely. And then you've got the ten tribes that go with Jeroboam. All that's taken place. Rehoboam makes two futile efforts to regain his power. <laughs> One, and this is a sign of not being too bright. He sends a guy to the people who was the head of the slave project. And what do they do? They bump him off. And Rehoboam has to hustle to his chariot and get out of there because he just rubbed salt in the wounds. Now, he, he, he really thinks, you know, there's got to be something. So he decides to muster all the troops and to go to battle with Jeroboam. And interestingly, God intervenes and says, don't think about it. I'm not in this. I'm here to divide you, not bring you together. Stay home. Strangely, Rehoboam did that. He obeyed. But that brings us to Jeroboam, who is introduced to us pretty much in chapter 13. Jeroboam was given the promise of God that if he were to be faithful to serve God and to keep his commands, then God would lengthen and give him security in terms of his, his reign. Now, the prophet's also clear that that's not an eternal reign, that that's, but that's for a length of time. So Jeroboam had the assurance of God, hey, this thing could go on for some time. <laughs> Jeroboam didn't believe the word of God. It says he had this thought in his heart, and i got to say, this is probably one time where you say, don't follow your heart. He did. And, and he says to himself, you know, what's going to happen is the people in my domain are going to go down to Jerusalem. They're going to worship in Jerusalem, which is in Rehoboam's territory. And ultimately, they will once again join themselves to Judah and to Rehoboam, and I will have lost my kingdom. So he has this brilliant idea. By the way, it says he, he sought counsel. I'd like to <laughs> fire those guys too. They said, hey, look, this is easy. All you have to do is give them a counterfeit religion. 
you just give them something that's like what they have in the South, but isn't quite there. And, and it's sort of the McDonald's religion of the North, have it your way. And so what do they do? You have two centers of worship, one up, way up in Dan and one down in Bethel, which I might add is just a very few miles from the border and I think like 10 miles from Jerusalem itself, way south. But what they're going to do is, is he's going to create this religion where he fires all the true prophets. And he hires, <laughs> he just goes to the marketplace, and anybody that wants to become a priest, come right on. And, and so they got these counterfeit priests, and he has these counterfeit feasts so that you can have a worship service that's kind of like what they used to do, but not exactly that way. And the bottom line is they got off into all kinds of idolatrous worship. It was a, it was a mess. And uh, Jeroboam would pay the price for his unbelief. He disregarded the word. Here's the interesting thing. And that's why I, I want to I lean on the whole matter of how similar that religion was to what they had. He creates two golden calves. Can't you see the PR guys going on this? I know Israel has one, have one golden calf in the past. We have two golden calves. And we say to them, here, O Israel, is your God who led you out of Egypt. It's exactly plagiarism from Exodus 32. And you're saying, don't you guys read? I mean, you know, 32 through 34, that was not a winning move. And here he doubles it. Well, that's when his troubles uh, really begin. So here he is, and he's going to dedicate in what I would assume was a very auspicious occasion. He's going to make this very formal dedication of the altar there in Bethel, just a few miles north of, of Jerusalem. And it, it must be just a solemn event, wouldn't you think? Very solemn. Probably had a band, whatever he had, but he, it was grand. And some guy, now we're introduced to this prophet who's never named. It's called a man of God. It's a common name for a prophet. It's just synonymous, really, with prophet. But He's a man of God from Judah. That's virtually all we know. I'm assuming because it was emphasized that the old prophet was old, that this prophet's at least younger. So <laughs> this young up, up sprout comes up, and in the middle of this solemn dedication, he calls forth this condemnation on the altar. And he says... You know, God's going to destroy this altar. He's going to spread the ashes out. And there's going to be somebody named Josiah in the future who's going to be the king of Judah. And he's going to just tear this place up. I love the next part. Seize that man. Can't you see his little arm going out there? The arm is really part of the whole humor of this, if you, if you can get into enjoying it. When you look in, the, in Exodus 13, 13, Deuteronomy 5, a number of times God describes his power as his outstretched arm. So here's, the, here's this, you know, this rinky-dink king 
who stretches out his arm, thinking it's going to have all kinds of power. You remember the king that stretched forth his scepter for Esther? Outstretched hands, that's mighty big stuff. Well, it wasn't for this guy. His head froze. Can you see him when he begins to pry it down on a hand? And, you know, what, what are we going to do with his hand? All of a sudden, he's not so brave. And, <laughs> and so he says to this young prophet, uh, uh, pardon me for interrupting, but would you mind talking to your God about this, this arm? Really need a little help with it. And in the midst of all that, he gets, oh, I call this a buy one, get one free. Because there, were, there was a sign that God had said was going to accompany this promise of this king years down the line who was going to destroy the altar. The sign was, it's going to get messed up right now. So God, you know, I don't know whether he put a huge crack, earthquake, whatever happened, but the altar comes apart. And the ashes are spread all over the place. And then he gets the second sign, the arm. You would think that a guy that was sort of bright would figure out, this does not bode well. <laughs> and, and so the king, he's, he's really intent on, this guy's been my adversary. I would really like to make him an ally. So he says to him, well, why don't we do lunch? The problem is, I'm guessing, I bet, this is purely hypothetical. What would you think lunch would be when you're in the middle of a sacrificial offering dedicating a temple? I would think it's going to be like the meat offered to idols in the New Testament, and it's going to be sacrificial meat. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what it was because the reality is, he now tells the king what his directives had been from God. And it wasn't only to deliver that message. It was to get, <laughs> once he did, to get out of Dodge. You know, don't go back the same way. Don't dally around. And don't stop for lunch. Very clear. So he says to the king, I'm sorry, I, I, can't, I can't accept that offer because of these reasons. So he goes his way. Well, the story isn't over, is it? Because two sons of the old prophet were there. Not the old prophet. He was not a spectator. He was not a participant in this heathen thing. For whatever reasons, which we don't know, the two sons were there, and they saw, and they heard it all. So they get home to dad the old prophet, and they say, hey, Pop, you wouldn't believe what we saw today. So they tell the story about the young prophet, story about the prophecy that he gives, how the altar was split and the ashes spread around and the king's arms frozen and then unfrozen. And uh, his dad says, uh, hmm, which way did he go? And so they saddle up the donkey, and he sets out in hot pursuit. <laughs> Do you ever watch Tim Conway when he pretends to be a little old man? You know, and he just moved. I, all right, I got that picture in my head. Here he is, this old prophet, 
how is he going to catch this younger prophet who's heading the other way? Somehow, you got to say, this younger prophet is not really in a hurry. Would you agree? I mean, here he is under the shade of an oak tree. I'm not sure that was a great idea. A rest stop. You can't have a rest stop to eat because you can't eat there, whether you brought the food or somebody else did. You can't eat. I, I really don't think that... I'm going to call him the younger prophet because that's an assumption, but the text does not say younger. But let's just say for the moment, he probably is. So this younger guy, he is not in any hurry. He's kind of dawdling along, and here this, this old man catches him. Oh, by the way, the kids had to come home, report to Pop. Pop had to process the data. They had to saddle the donkey. Do you know how long it took just to get ready to go after him? This young buck, I don't think he's hurried at all. So the old prophet catches up, and uh, he asks him, are you, are, you, uh, the, uh, are you the guy that my sons were telling me about? Yep, yeah, that's me. And he says to him, um, why don't you come to my house for lunch? So this prophet, this man of God, says to him, well, just exactly what he said to the king, Jeroboam said, no, I'm sorry, but God told me I was to deliver this message, was to go straight home another way, and I was not to eat or drink water until I got there. This is where the old prophet moves from a harmless old man to a lethal weapon, right? We don't know why. This text is filled with questions that we don't have the answers to because it's not important for the message. So anyway, the, uh, the, old, <laughs> the old prophet, he puts the moves on. And you've got to say, how come he can turn down a king, but he can't turn down an old coot? And I think the answer is, and I'm, I'm going to use the words of Dale Ralph Davis. Uh, Ron and I were talking, and the commentary is on First Kings is in the library. And I really like the way he he does things, and so I may pick up an expression from him here or there, and if I do, it was him. But, but anyway, one, he flashes his prophet's badge. King couldn't do that. Oh, I'm a prophet, too. <clears throat> and then he caps it with, oh, and I got a new message. I've got the revised version of God's message to you. It's been updated. Didn't you read your email? It says, and this, by the way, came from an angel. And the message says, you are to come to my house so that you can eat. I think there's one more trump card, and that is, he's old. He played the senior card. You know, in, in our culture, we don't really understand what age means. When you go in other parts of the world, age counts. Here... When you go to the doctor at my age, they give you a gift card for Restland. <laughs> Not there. Not there. It really counted. So here he's got this triple threat, right? I'm a prophet. An angel told me this new revelation, and I'm old. For whatever reason, the young guy gives in. He goes to his house. And strange as it may seem... There's sort of a flipping of identities now, 
And it's the old prophet who's now the spokesman for God and the young prophet who's out of line. And so the the old prophet says to him, man, you really messed up. And I have to tell you, you disobeyed the word of the Lord. And uh, it's interesting to me that when he talks about what comes next, it's, it's vague. If he would have said to that young man, now, when you get on that donkey and you're heading out of town, you're going to meet somebody you really don't want to meet. It's a lion, and he's, uh, he's going to kill you. Didn't tell him any of that. What he said was, something bad will befall you. You will not be buried in the tomb of your father's. And I assume that means you won't be buried in Judah. You'll be buried somewhere else. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you this now because I'm going to work on it a little bit later too. But where you're buried and how you're buried counted a lot in ancient Israel. You remember some of those texts about a king? And it will say, well, he wasn't buried in Jerusalem. He wasn't buried in the place of his fathers. He's buried out in the boondocks, whatever. But, but not to be buried in the place of honor was really bad. And so that's what this older prophet has said to the younger guy. Another interesting thing about this is the young guy took, takes this in and finishes lunch. That just frosts me. I'm thinking, come on, man, wake up. What's going on? You know, eating this place was what you weren't to do. Well, I finish. And, and then they saddle up the donkey. He heads on. The old prophet stays. The young, younger prophet goes his way. And you know the story. The, uh, the men from uh, town, the men who were circulating around, come across this tragic scene. And, and here is... The, the body of uh, the, the young prophet that's been mauled, I, I can't imagine anything worse than being mauled by a, a, a big cat, right? This is, <laughs> this is not the way I would choose to go. But here's the carcass, the body of this guy, and standing calmly beside it is, is the donkey. And, and standing beside them is the lion. Now, I know it isn't a funny scene, but I (laughs) thought to myself, this lion is not behaving in a lionly way. How many times had this lion's mother said to him, now, Leo, finish your supper? (laughs) He hadn't touched him. He hadn't touched him. Why do lions kill people? Because they're hungry. I, I, there are lots of titles I could come up with at this, you know, how, how a, a, a sinning prophet makes, makes a, a lion sick to his stomach. There are, you know, all kinds of things you can say. But whatever it is, what we see is the scene is another sign of a miracle. Because, one, if I was a donkey and a lion standing right by me, I would be looking for the closest trail out of sight. Donkey sitting there totally unaffected. And here's the lion. Here's the corpse. 
It's an unnatural scene, and that's the point. And people who saw it said to themselves, whew, that's weird. And so the report got back to the old prophet. And the old prophet has him saddle up the donkey again, goes out, picks up the body of this uh, young prophet, and he takes it home, and he has it buried. He mourns for him. Notice he calls him my brother. He mourns for him. He buries him in his own tomb. And he says to his sons, when I die, put my bones with his. That's kind of interesting, don't you think? And then the story stops for 300 years. <laughs> yeah, but, I, but you notice, and Joe was telling me this, look at the last couple of verses of chapter 13. Jeroboam is totally unaffected with what he's seen. What does he do? He has a repair crew come out and put the altar back together. And he appoints more priests. He goes right on with the plan and all of this activity on, on God's part to send him a message. Bore no fruit at all. And it's no wonder that he and his whole dynasty will be wiped out in the future. Now, one could easily stop here if you chose. Dale Ralph Davis does, and, uh, and he says, and I think rightly so, let's not spend our time looking at answers for questions that were not given. Why did the old prophet want the young prophet for lunch? Why did he lie? Why did all this stuff happen? Why did the young man buy that argument? We don't know any of those answers. But what he says is, the clue to what's important is what's repeated. And that's the expression, the word of the Lord. I looked it up in one of my tools, and uh, I think it's maybe Ezekiel, number one. It occurs like 60 times. Uh, Jeremiah, uh, slightly less. And then comes 1 Kings, 33 times. In all the Bible, third. It occurs in chapter 13, 13 times. And a couple times just before it. And if that isn't enough, there are other synonyms for the word of the Lord that are added as well. So <laughs> I think Davis is right to say, obviously, this is about obedience to the word of God. And what you see is Rehoboam, Jeroboam, the young prophet, the old prophet, they all disobeyed the word of the Lord. And what's interesting about that is their disobedience wasn't because what the, the, the scriptures had forbidden was obscure. I mean, just think of the, the creation of this false religious worship Exodus 32 through 34 is as clear as it could get, and later writers refer back to it as a dumb thing to do. It's not unclear. <laughs> There's just all kinds of revelation. And then you get this thing about slavery. God had made it clear to the Israelites, I led you out of slavery. That ought to change the way you view the subject. Didn't affect 
Rehoboam or Jeroboam, much at all. And you come to this, how do I tell a false prophet from a genuine prophet? Deuteronomy chapter 13, Deuteronomy chapter 18. I'll give you the two main tests. One, if a man gives a prophecy about a future event or thing and it happens, you don't accept that blindly. You say, does his message lead you to devout worship of me? If it leads you another way, he's dead, literally dead. He's lion food. And secondly, if what he says doesn't come true, then he's a false prophet as well. The reality was this young man had adequate scripture to assess that what he was told was not true. And yet Israel really walked by that. So what I would say is this. Number one, when we disregard or disobey the word of God, peril is not far behind. Obedience, even in these seemingly small details, he didn't fudge, this young prophet, he didn't fudge on the message, and, and he didn't flinch when he had to take on a king. He just failed to apply that same prophecy to his own life. That's lethal. And that's the message that Dale Ralph Davis ends with. I'm going to take his principle one more step. Because the story is not over in 1 Kings 13. The story is over in 2 Kings 23. I got to say to you, this is where Josiah comes on the scene, okay? Eight years old, he becomes the king. Now, let me just talk about those intervening 300 years. Boy, if you were looking for obedience and man's faithfulness as the basis for God fulfilling his covenant promises, what do you think Israel's hopes are at the end of chapter 13? Yeah, nil, folks, nil. Now we have 300 years of history, 300 years of human disobedience. I mean, that's what the pages are all about. 300 years and God fulfills his promise exactly as he said he would. Not because we are faithful, but because he is. See, I think there are a lot of Christians that they've come to the point of saying, all right, I understand, my salvation is the work of God. And fundamentally it is. You've got to believe, but it's God's work. I think some people look at prophecy and say, well, oh, if we're going to make this happen, we really got to get on the stick. I think this text ought to say to us, um, don't trust yourself. 300 years of disobedience. God fulfilled his promises because he made them and he brought them to pass. Often, not always, sometimes through human disobedience. It was actually disobedience he used to fulfill his promise. That boggles my brain, but you got to say, to God be the glory. All right, that gets us to, gets us to chapter 23 of, of 2 Kings. 
Josiah comes to power, eight years old, and he is serious about restoring uh, Judah to its former spiritual relationship with God. And as part one of the program, he does a restoration project on the temple. And in the course of that restoration project, what happens? Somebody finds the law. Get this, folks. How many years had they not even known there was a law or where it was? Somebody comes along and says, whoa, what do you know? A scroll. I wonder what it says. Can, and what I'm saying is if you disobey and disregard God's word, then it'll disappear and nobody will even know it because you, you don't really care about it. So somebody takes this book of the law and hands it to Josiah. He's scared to death. If it really works this way, we are in really big trouble. Right? So he sets out to turn the nation back to its right worship of God according to the Scriptures. And that's where we get to those verses that describe what he does in, in fulfilling the, uh, the prophecy of 1 Kings chapter 13. 2 Kings 23, starting at verse 15. Moreover, the altar at Bethel, that's the one we've been talking about, the altar at Bethel, the high place erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, that altar with the high place he pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust. He also burned the Asherah, and as Joshua turned, he saw the tombs there on the mount, and he sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it according to the word of the Lord that the man of God proclaimed who had predicted these things. Fulfillment. Then he said, this is where I'm really working up to. I love this part. Then he said, what's that monument over there that I see? Somebody says to him, well... Um, the men of the city say it's the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and predicted these things that you have done against the altar at Bethel. And he said, let him be. Let no man move his bones. He was willing to take the bones of sinful people. By the way, I'm not sure this is true, but if you were a heathen, where would you want to be buried? I'd want to be buried really close to the holy place. So I'm guessing that almost all those graves around that Bethel uh, altar were, were idol worshipers. And, and now Josiah has them dig those things up, burn the bones, and put the ashes on the altar. i got to tell you, folks, that says to me they're not supposed to be used again, Right? <laughs> this is the way Moses, remember when he ground up the golden calf, poured it on the water and made people drink it? Are you going to be up mining for gold where that stuff went? I don't think so. This is so defiled that nobody is going to have anything to do with it. The thing that's interesting to me is he doesn't touch the bones of the young prophet and the old prophet, which are there in the same tomb. Why? I think when you look at what's important in this 
in 1 Kings 13, besides the emphasis on the word of the Lord, what gets the next most emphasis? The old prophet. Twice the emphasis as the young prophet. Why is that? Well, it's the old prophet who sins, but it's the old prophet who seems to repent and, and he now identifies himself with a young prophet, calls him my brother, and gets buried with him. He identifies himself with the young prophet. I think that's what saved the old boy, so to speak, in his grave. What I'm saying is, all right, some of you are going to get off the train here. Okay, that's fine. I, I believe, I really look for Jesus on every page of the Old Testament and the New I believe that when you look at the scriptures redemptively, and that is you keep saying to yourself, what is there about this text that points me to Jesus and the cross? I think this is a redemptive text. I think what this text is telling us is that when this old prophet repented, when he buried the young prophet and then he had his bones placed with, I think he's saying, I identify with him and his message. I think, I think we may see that guy in heaven. You know, but the truth is, see, we think he's such a rat. We don't really want him in heaven, do we? No, let him go somewhere else where the lions are kept, but it's not, let's not let him get there. And uh, it just struck me as we were in our worship time, and I thought about, is God, in the, in the book of 1 Kings, how redemptive is God? And you look at 1 Kings and, and you see that account, what is it, chapter 21, uh, where he is, is speaking about Ahab, and he basically says to Ahab, you are in really big, I mean, he was the most wicked king that ever lived. You know what happened to him? He repented and God forgave him. You and I don't really want Ahab in heaven either, do we? But you see, that's because God saves men not on the basis of what we have done, on the basis of what Christ has done. I love it. Redemption for the old prophet. Redemption for Ahab in the same book. That's a beautiful, beautiful assurance to us that God doesn't save us because we do the right stuff all the time. The reality is... We're really miserable folks in our performance scale. But God honors repentance and identification. And, and I would say the identification of that old prophet with the young prophet is sort of similar to our identification with Christ. We're saved because we have identified with him. And so it's a beautiful, I think, it's a beautiful message of the gospel in a place you'd never expect to find it. Beautiful text. So I guess we'll have to change it back to a PG. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this text. It is, it is really a head-scratcher in so many ways. And yet, the way it ends, it makes it so clear that it's all about you. It's all about your faithfulness to your covenant. When your people and us so often fail, 
to live the way we should. We're grateful for that. If there's anybody here who thinks, uh, I'm, not, I'm not good enough to get there, then just help them to get in line behind Ahab and, and uh, this old prophet and Paul who says, I'm the chief of sinners because our salvation comes from you, and for that we're grateful in Jesus' name. Amen.